Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this newest episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend, in prison or out of it, my co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Hopefully out of it. Hopefully we never go to prison together. <laughs> Although, if we're going to go to prison, I would like to go together, if there we that go. can be arranged. There's a there's a silver lining in this, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you get to do that, to, like, request, kind of like you do with, like, you know... Like college roommates, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right. Well... This is a special moment for us, Patch, ever since the beginning of this podcast. So three years, I, maybe four years. I always forget. It'll be, it'll be four in April. That is insane. I look for, <laughs> I look for BVS, the release date. And That's how I, I remember too. I just Google, <laughs> Google the release date. Um, yeah. So for four years now, we've considered talking about this film and it's a movie that we both deeply love. Several times we've put it on the schedule only to remove it when something more current caught our eye. And we've even put this film in the voting pool on a couple of occasions for our donor pick episode. But it wasn't until this most recent one in November that it finally won. So to celebrate Thanksgiving, we wanted to chat about this movie with strong friendships. And this is one that has those. I am really glad that we are finally getting to talk about it. And so with that said... Here is your spoiler warning, listeners. If you have not seen The Shawshank Redemption, go check it out. We highly recommend it. And then come back and dig into all of its themes and goodness with us here, because we are going to spoil the heck out of it, starting right now with Patrick's one-word takeaway. It's awesome. No, it's not the one word, but it is awesome. And it's definitely a movie that has over time become one of my favorites, not just because it plays on TBS and TNT and AMC all the time, much like a Christmas story around the holiday, but it's just fantastic. It is a movie that um, there's something pure and poetic and beautiful about it. It, it hits me in certain places that other movies don't. But the thing is the, and the one word that I, that I pulled from this is the word um, everyone. I think this is a movie for everyone. It's got drama, humor, plot twists. Um, the bad guys get their just desserts. There's redemption. It's feel good. There's all these things that you want in a movie that when you leave the theater or leave the movie experience, you go, that's what I'm talking about. There are some movies that have more of those elements than others, but when you can balance all those things, it's really, really amazing. But it also is about everyone. It's, not that everyone deserves to or should be in prison necessarily, but the things that Andy and Red and our main characters all deal with are things that we can connect with on some level. What it means to find redemption, what it means to have hope, what it means to look at life in a different way because of your circumstances. All of these things are, I believe, something that we've experienced at some point in our lives because Movies should be what make us feel something, as our podcast is always promoting, but they should also give us pause to think about things. I think those are the movies that you and I gravitate towards are those that we want to have a conversation about afterwards, and they provoke thought. They provoke questions about life and about 
the world around us. And Shawshank Redemption really does, in its own way, bring that to fruition. For a movie that came out, I think, in the mid-90s that was not received well in the theaters, I'm so grateful that it got to be critically acclaimed. I think it was nominated, maybe even won a couple of Oscars. But it's one of those movies that does not age. It's timeless in terms of not really its setting, but its ideas and themes and things that anybody can gravitate towards. Really, any everyone can gravitate towards. So that's my one word. Gravitate? No, everyone. That's <laughs> right. All those words are my words. But there were a everyone. lot of words there. I didn't know which one we were like focusing. Everyone. On. This movie's for everyone, and everyone can connect to it. I like that, and I think you're absolutely right. And it was a movie that came out in the mid '90s, specifically in 1995, directly in the mid '90s, and it was nominated for seven awards, I believe. Lots and stuff. It had best actor, best picture. The score, the screenplay, cinematography. I mean, there's a, a list of incredibly talented people working on this movie. So um, unsurprising there. It did not win anything. I think that was the surprise was that it didn't get any awards. And then years later, it suddenly shot up to the top of like the IMDb top 250 list or something. And, and all of a sudden it became what people considered the greatest film of all time. And there was all this discussion about it. And it was very strange how it just out of nowhere went from not in the conversation to suddenly being everybody's favorite film that they'd ever seen. It was a really interesting path that this movie took. Well, my one word takeaway, Patrick, was uplifting. Oh, Shawshank Redemption, how I love thee. Let me count the ways. Man, this is just a story that leaves me uplifted and encouraged. It expresses the need for friendship and bravery and freedom and, above all, hope. Uh, and it's really honest, I think, about the struggles and the challenges that obtaining those things can bring. It's technically amazing. It's beautifully shot by Roger Deakins. It has this perfect moving score by Thomas Newman, one of our favorites, and then, of course, the dulcet tones of Morgan Freeman narration to match. Maybe the best narration in a movie ever. I think it's definitely in contention. It's a really powerful story and one that I know this is going to sound hyperbolic, but it truly has the power to change how a viewer approaches life, in my opinion. And there are plenty of films that I love despite their minor quibbles, things that I might point out and be like, oh, you know. I absolutely love this film, even though I can recognize, you know, maybe this tiny little what you might call an objective flaw. I think Shawshank is flawless. I don't think that there's a problem with this movie at all uh, anywhere. And it's a movie that brings me to tears. And I think it can show us painful realities of our world that sadly even still exist. But also it manages to leave us feeling uplifted. And I think that's pretty special. Well, our theme for this month was movies about friendship. That's how this got chosen. So I kind of want to start there. And I want to throw this out. What's a relationship that stood out to you? What is one relationship? What is something about this movie with regards to a friendship that makes you think of it? What, what, what do you, for, for you personally, like, what did we put this on the list for, I guess? 
Well, obviously there's Andy and Red's relationship, but I think it's more than anything the relationships that Andy has with prison life. I say more than. I mean, it's equally about those two things because we don't know a lot about Andy prior to getting into Shawshank. We get a little bit of backstory through his trial, but everything is really given to us through Red's perspective. And so as Red is kind of sizing him up, we're kind of sizing him up because we know about as much as Red does. So his relationship with him is one that allows us to become friends with him as an audience. And when you look at Shawshank as a narrative, it centers around and has to around a relationship. You've got to have somebody to latch onto early on in the movie. The guys in the prison, Red and his gang are taking bets on these new fish, as they call them, as they're coming in to see who's going to crack. We don't know that at the time, but it gets kind of played out in a very casual way. And you see by the end of the or by the middle of the night or as they're being locked up, this this overweight guy breaks down. But he only breaks down when one of Red's friends says, hey, I'll show you around. I'll, you know, I'll make some real, you know, give you some real friendship. He didn't say friendship, but he was essentially trying to goad him. Compare that to the sisters and particularly the leader of the sisters who comes up to Andy and says, I can be a friend to you. So there's these interesting things where friendship in both true and a, a true and a false sense get played out. And I think those are by design because what happens is we have this relationship between Red and Andy that gradually grows over the course of the movie. In fact, I began to question, when do they actually become friends? It's difficult to figure out because it's a business transaction that starts their relationship. There are moments where you feel like Andy has done things for Red, maybe just to try to get in and have those kinds of friendships and then red does the same thing for him. So there's, there's all these moments, but I think why Shawshank stands out as a movie around friendship for me is because those friendships are important. Those relationships are important. I think they're the ones that get Andy through each day because if he had been locked away in isolation, the entire movie, I don't know that, he would be able to function the way that he eventually does. He influences them, they influence him, and his relationship with Red specifically is sort of a personification of how he adapts to prison life, something that I don't know that he could do in the world of banking that he was in originally. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting to me because I agree with you that they don't really seemingly have a friendship early on that you can point to a moment and say, this is where they become friends. They do have these business-like transactions. And even a moment that takes place where Andy does something for Red, he's doing it for quite a few people early in the film. And you don't really get the sense that he's necessarily doing it as much for them. You almost... To be honest, it feels almost like he's doing this thing and getting them a beer as a means of getting the guard on his good side versus the reward aspect. Like the reward aspect feels like a bonus. It's not about like to me, it's not about like I'm going to get my friends 
this benefit. It's about, I'm going to go and get something, get this relationship with a guard to a place where I can start to work on some, work my way into something bigger. And then on the side, there's an extra benefit of that. So, you know, that's like a step, I guess, towards friendship. I think that, uh, you know, that moment particularly is one that draws the crowd to him uh, and starts to have them think about him differently, which allows those walls to come down. But with regards to Red specifically, we don't get a bunch of huge, like, moments where there's this big event and Red stops something from happening. And so because of that, they're friends. You're right. It plays out over these little progressive conversations that they have. And I think that that's beautiful because it really mirrors the real world, in my opinion. You know, most people don't become friends because of a big surprise event. They become friends over time. They're talking because they met and it's a matter of, I'm going to get you a poster for some cigarettes. And then they suddenly start chatting about, why do you want that poster? Or why do you want this? And oh, so you have a hobby. And oh, yeah, back in the day, I was into this. And it you just, you start to get to know one another. Those walls come down. You start to allow someone else into your space. And you start to trust someone. Their relationship is one that comes to be built on a lot of trust. And it's never forsaken. Like they always keep that between the two of them throughout the whole film. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting contrast between those two and, um, looking at the warden and Hadley, our two kind of antagonists in the movie. And what you said sparked something in me that both of these, I'm going to call them couples, both of these pairs have a relationship in some way. So a relationship being a connection between two people based on some kind of common ground. It could be a business relationship. It could be a romantic relationship, whatever. I mean, that's speaking of relationships in general. But what elevates it to a friendship implies a sense of trust, a sense of, in the case of prison life, I believe that Red saw Andy as a friend when he goes through his perseverance with the sisters. And so the moment that he gets completely wasted by Boggs in the movie theater, I'm not going to say that was the moment, but for us, I think that was a huge step in elevating him and his relationship with Red and that group of people to another level. Because at some point, Red's going to look at him and say, this is where he's going to crack. But the fact that he didn't and the gesture that he made of giving Rita to him for free and giving the rocks. I think that was a, was a signpost for him. I think that was a moment where he said, you know what? There's something different about Andy. But the thing is like any relationship, like any deep friendship, it's rooted in those moments. It's rooted in moments of trust in moments of vulnerability. It's rooted in moments of real, not necessarily hardship, but real openness towards each other. And that's different from the warden and Hadley. Theirs is purely a business transaction that's built on the common ground of making prison life, I won't say the worst for the people in it, but making the people in prison feel like prisoners and not like people. I think both of those have that common ground, even though externally they approach it from different places. 
which is really interesting. But I think they would both agree that that's why they're there is to instill discipline. It may be physical, it may be emotional, maybe mental, whatever. But both of those have that common ground. But I don't think they're going to be hanging out, and I don't believe they would trust each other. I think if if it came down to Warden having to give up Hadley to protect his own hide, he'd do it. And I think Hadley would do the same thing to the Warden. They don't have that kind of friendship. They have a business relationship, which I don't know if that's by design to contrast against Red and Andy, but I think it's really interesting to see it. Yeah, I definitely did not consider that, the contrast of it, but you're absolutely right that they play out very differently. I'd actually argue, I think, that Hadley probably would protect the warden, I think, but out of a place of fear, out of a place of intimidation, out of a place of, this is the man that makes things happen for me, and he protects me, and so therefore, I'm going to do what I can to protect him. Um, clearly there's a level of trust there as well because and, and respect and respect you know hadley wouldn't shoot a prisoner you know, uh, tommy in cold blood if he didn't have trust and faith that the warden was going to protect him for doing that right that's a good point that's a good um, point but you're right there's no friendship there it's not based on any sort of actual feelings of care for one of one another right and the thing is when we look at those two relationships, I think that at the end, we do see the real motives, the real what's important to this person, specifically in the warden. He shoots himself. He doesn't go down and try to protect Hadley. He doesn't say, you know, whoa, 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 he's not to blame. He doesn't take ownership for himself. He shoots himself. And I think that says a lot about him more than it does about their relationship. But you're right. It's built on respect, but I think it's built on fear. Uh, more than anything else and less about it's not built on love and it's not built on compassion no it's not and i think the word that i like to point out uh, in regards to love in general this is the word i always come back to when people ask me about defining love you can't really distill it into a single word and that's important i think but I, i like to think about sacrifice i think love requires a level will always require some level of sacrifice some level of giving up something of yourself for someone else. And that is something you see in Red and Andy's relationship because both of them do that. Both of them make choices that intentionally help the other person at the risk of themselves. And that is a key aspect of love and of taking friendships beyond the superficial. I mean, you know, I deal deal with this in real life even, and I'm sure many of us do, where we have plenty of people we interact with online or in our everyday life that we might call acquaintances, that we get along with just fine. We can have a conversation about movies. We might have tons of common interests, but there comes a point where that day-to-day, deeper life stuff, for me, you only have the capacity to have so many of those. And so... You know, many of these guys that Andy interacts with in prison, I do not believe, I do not think of them as friends in the way that he is friends with Red. They are more like acquaintance-like friends, right? And I think that that's fine. I don't think that you have the ability, you talk about this often, you like to use the analogy of the love tank. Um, you'll say, you know, hey, I gotta fill up the love tank with my wife this weekend um, which is beautiful, I think. I think it is a fantastic way of looking at it, right? Um, and 
it, it can work like that with friends too, but like you only have so much room in that tank <laughs> for filling it up for people. And so you have to, you have to have some that are going to get more than others. And so that's really what you see play out here with Andy. He's, he's a friend to everybody. He is cordial to everybody. He cares about everyone, but not on the level that he comes to care about red. But I, I wanted to transition here from what you were talking about with the warden, because the warden is an awful, awful man, <laughs> awful little man who makes me just tremble in hatred at times. And the thing about him that stood out to me this viewing really is he's the kind of man who claims to be doing things for God, which really, really irritates me, especially this time in our country's history where I feel like we tend to be seeing this happen. Things thrown around in the name of God that really don't have any basis in the Bible or our faith. And you see that. You see the warden acting clearly in opposition to the Bible that he quotes frequently. I wonder what you thought about this. Do you think that he believes that he is a just messenger of God and he is doing the Lord's bidding? Or do you think that he is acting for effect? Do you think he's using that as a cover to just do whatever he wants? I think he probably believes in his heart what he's doing is the right thing, but he is clearly corrupt in that. And that probably comes with the history of being the warden. I mean, when you're around negativity, when you're around chaos like that for a long time, it's probably going to have an effect on you. And who knows? I'd like to believe optimistically that he came into this job feeling like he really could build a place of rehab. But at some point, maybe he realized these are lost souls and all I have left is the the law at this point. So if, if we if we take this theological for a minute, I feel like we've got kind of a an Old Testament approach using a New Testament kind of ideology. Yes, Christian, love, whatever, we're, we're throwing those ideas in there. But the fact is, he is using the wrath of God to instill punishment, and he focuses on that. There's nothing about what he does that feels redemptive. It feels like there's any compassion. And, of course, by by the middle part of the movie, as we start to see what he's doing, the fact is, he's just like these inmates. He's just as corrupt. He's got his own methods. He's got his own motivations. And I think he's at a point where he believes that what he's doing is just. And so it's kind of this twisted idea of this is what God wants. I'm going to pick out, I'm going to proof text parts of scripture. There's this great scene where he's talking to Andy and he pulls out certain scripture that caters to his way of doing things. And Andy clearly just comes right back at him with another passage of scripture. And it's like this word game that they're playing. So I'd like to think that he feels like he's the long arm of the Lord that is trying to instill justice, but it's com it's clearly not complete. It's clearly one part of what Christianity would see God as as very just and a God of the what we call the God of the Old Testament who can swing both ways, very much blessing his people and very much cursing his people and punishing his people for doing wrong. I think had I think the warden lives on that other side where he says everybody in here is bad. 
and therefore they need to be treated with punishment before anything else. And rehabilitation or whatever he calls it lives in that definition. I don't think he thinks he's corrupt, which makes it even worse. I think he feels like what he's doing is right and he continuously justifies it internally for whatever reason. I agree mostly with that. And I, I think that he does justify it, but I think he does on some level know very much so that he is corrupt. And I think there's two different pieces to this. One is the arm of the wrath of God towards the prisoners and how he controls the prison and the life of the daily flow. And the other is the siphoning of money in the, stealing and the dirty under the table things that are using he's using to further his own personal gain and i think those are two different distinct parts of his personality where the justification using the wrath of god for how he runs the prison i do feel like you're right i think he just has convinced himself that he is that character and i think that on the other side of that he's he's deceiving himself. I don't think he fully, I don't think he believes that God wants him to steal money from people is where I'm going with that. I think he is aware that he is wrong and he is making a choice. Absolutely. Using his position. Absolutely. But I think that didn't exist before Andy got there because he, at least I, I don't think the, I don't think the narrative supported that because the way he got those kickbacks, the way he got more money was being able to siphon it through in some creative way. He may have now it's true. He may have wanted to do that. He may have seen those as opportunities to get those contracts and have cheap labor and, and whatnot. But the ability those I think the kickbacks specifically came as a result of Andy being there because he wouldn't have had a way to to clean it. So I think there I would agree with you. I think the deception that 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 broken that evil heart was there covered by a facade of Christianity or a facade of doing right for God, but I think it was reinforced when he found a way to be able to get cash for that and be able to gain through Andy. Yeah, no, I agree. I just I guess I guess my point would be that I think that while we only see one example of that being the siphoning of this money through money laundering via what Andy has been doing. I think it speaks to the way that the warden has run things. He's been in charge for like 30 years or something. I don't believe for a second he hasn't done this type of thing before, whether it's stealing money or some other thing for personal gain. I feel that he has used the prison to further himself. Um, and on that side, I think I don't think he feels he's justified. Um, you mentioned something about Andy that I wanted to pinpoint the scene where he comes back spouting scripture, like from memory is fascinating and it happens so fast and it's really never brought up again. We don't know a ton about Andy from before his life in prison. We get very quick backstory on the fact that he was a bad husband, essentially, or absent, and then we find out what happened. Do you think that his life has been changed? Do you think that the relationships he had in Shawshank made him a different person? Or do you think 
that he was always that person. And these relationships are just a natural consequence of, you know, that playing itself out the way that he interacted with Red Brooks and Tommy. It's an interesting question. It's something that I've thought about as I've watched this, because you're right. We don't get a lot of that backstory. And I really think that's by design. I'd like to infer that he's changed as a result of being in there because when you're confined to prison, you're confined to a life that doesn't change from day to day. And so what you do is you gravitate towards the constants in your world. I'd like to believe that Andy, like most people, wanted to find purpose. And he started that by creating a chessboard because I think it's either because red says in a narrative prison life is prison time is slow time and you find ways to make up for that. And what I believe Aaron is that there were things in his life that he was interested in and he was able to leverage those things to influence other people. So he wouldn't have gotten to connect with Brooks had he not informed Hadley about his taxes because as we find out he got sent down to brooks's library so that hadley could send one of the other guards to set up a trust fund or something for his kid that built a relationship with hadley which allowed him to fall in love so he connected with brooks and by connecting with brooks he fell in love with the library and he found a way to make the library have more of a purpose so he got funds to have the library expanded from that expansion in comes Tommy and he allowed Tommy to take his proficiency exam to graduate from high school. So I think all these things were triggered by his prison experience, but internally I think it was partly him wanting to find purpose and that just kind of catapulted to different things. So I think as he grew over those 19 years, he found ways to fulfill that purpose that echoed and echoed and echoed, which I think is a really beautiful thing because had he not decided to engage with red to get something for himself, it wouldn't have led to these other things. Yeah. I think what is really good about the way that this story plays out. One thing that I like as opposed to some narratives where you see an element of luck to a character's story things happen out of their control right place right time andy is shown to experience of course some of those things but the key here is that andy has the smarts andy has the drive andy has the means to take advantage of situations as they unfold in front of him at all times absolutely I don't think he goes into prison with the idea that I'm going to get out of here, you know, and we see that we see that towards the end of the movie where he doesn't get the rock hammer seemingly with the desire to tunnel out. I actually realized that this watch, that was not something he had intended to do. It's when he's putting his name in the wall and the chunk comes out that he goes, oh, this is a possibility. And so then he takes advantage via using his brain of that situation. He's gifted that slight opportunity and he finds a way to maximize it. 
And he continues to do that throughout the, throughout the film over and over and over. And he does that in ways that also help him build those friendships and relationships. And I can't help but think that as far as his ability to do taxes and his brain, like that clearly is something that he had on the outside as well. He was a successful banker. We're told that, that it shows up very obviously. I also think that it's not surprising to see him pick up and have these relationships and form this bond with Red because, you know, he doesn't necessarily, we don't learn that he never had that capability. We just learned that he made poor choices and didn't give his wife the time that she needed, right? He chose to spend that time other places. It's not that he was an incapable of giving her his time and his attention. It's that he made a choice not to do so. So I think he's always been capable of it. I think that, like you said, being stuck in slow time gives you an opportunity to bring out some of those traits and focus on them in ways that you might get distracted by the hustle and bustle of everyday life and the constant flow of like, even today in our world, entertainment choices is the big one. Right. How often do we get distracted by and I'll speak up for me. I'll just be the one to say, like, I do it all the time. I get distracted by my next entertainment thing that I'm going to watch or play or do. And I have to check myself constantly. Like, am I letting that influence my real life relationships? And what's the balance between that? And I think for Andy, that was off for him in his real life. But when he gets into prison, Red starts helping him see that, like, this is a different flow to your life now. And Andy's able to take advantage of the real Andy that's in there, but you take all that crap away and you have nowhere else to put it, but into positive outcomes. Yeah. And I think that he realized he had to leverage what he brought in from the outside to survive. So a hobby became a not lifesaver, but it became something that helped him get through the day, which is his geology, his, his rock polishing hobby. His ability to financially plan on the outside, which was a business transaction, became an opportunity for him to maybe curry favor with the guards, and it led to things. But I don't know that he necessarily planned all that. I think that he had to take that first step, but he saw his abilities as a means, as as the years went on, I think he saw his abilities as that asset as as opposed to a liability. Because when you think about a banker in prison, you don't think that that's going to match. Like if you're going to survive in prison, you want to be what? Stereotypically, you want to be somebody who's strong, maybe somebody who's got some kind of brute force behind him in some way, shape or form, somebody who is going to be able to take care of himself. This tall drink of water that could, as Red says, uh, be blown over by a stiff wind is not someone who could survive, which is probably why he thought in the very beginning he was going to be the first one to crack. He had a quiet way about him, as Red says, but that quiet way I think was very much an internalized way that Andy lived on the outside where it helped him in prison. It probably hurt him in his relationship with his wife. He was the same person in both places, but in one instance it actually worked for him to get him out of prison eventually. And in another, it, it killed the relationships that he had 
that's a great, 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 great point, I think. And it resonates with me because I'm not Andy. I am the opposite of Andy, and I would have a real hard time in prison in his situation, I guess, because of not being Andy. Because my mouth is always moving, and I'm, I wear my emotions on my sleeve, and I will speak them into everyone's ear, and I will let them be known. And because of that, that can be taken advantage of. That can be used against you, and Andy was, like you said, able to internalize those things until very specific moments when he needed to let that out. And of course, that became therapeutic for him once he did that. But that did help him in the beginning. And it helped him get through his early years. I wanted to ask you, because I think you have a bit of a unique perspective here on a movie like this. You spent several years doing regular prison ministry. I got to go with you at least once. I think it was just once. But I remember still being, it's, it's very vivid in my memory of just being blown away at the experience. And, and you did this for a long time. You had some close relationships with prisoners. Some that I remember when you stopped doing this work, it really was hard for you. Um, and you missed it. And you missed those relationships and those people. I just wondered if you would, how does that inform the way you watch this movie now? Like, what do you see that compares relationship-wise to what is depicted in Shawshank versus what you saw from prisoners uh, when you were doing that? To sound like a political statement, but very true, the people in the prison are just that. They're people. They're not numbers. Even though they have a number on them, literally, they are not numbers. When you get to know some of these guys, especially the lifers, those seem to be the most stable relationships that live inside the prison walls because they know they're not going anywhere. So they've built a life for themselves with that routine and with the the day-to-day stuff. And getting a chance to talk to inmates, you really appreciate the life that They've not, maybe they've indirectly chosen to have because of choices that they've made, but the way in which they've learned to adapt and they may see themselves as innocent. They may see themselves as not wanting to be there. I, I think anybody that I talked to in there would tell you they'd rather be on the outside. So that's something that I think most people on short stints or maybe longer stints that maybe isn't life would want. They want life on the outside. They definitely know that there's a lack of freedom, but at the same time, there's a sense of vulnerability that comes with being inside those walls, especially when I got a chance to visit with some of the same people from week to week. I built those friendships and those relationships, having a common ground, not because of circumstance, obviously, but of faith. There were genuine believers in there. Those that saw their faith as a foundation to help them not just survive, but thrive in a world that they may or may not be leaving. So they found ways to, like Andy, use their strengths to benefit those, to serve other people in the prison. I don't know if it played out where they actually got outside the laundry room, so to speak, and got put in better living situations or job situations. I didn't necessarily get into that. But what I did see was that those that 
saw a guy not in white walking through the halls, they knew who I was. They knew what I was there for. And it created an opportunity to have real dialogue. I had a guy talk to me about my salvation story, and he proceeded to tell me his perspective and what he thought creation started with. And it was, from my perspective, really bizarre. But to hear him tell it, that was what he believed. And it created an opportunity to have an honest conversation about not why, to not try to prove him wrong or try to prove me wrong, but to understand where he was coming from. And for him, that was a piece that helped him survive in that environment. It was his faith. So to be able to talk to these guys, it really humanized them. It made me realize that they weren't defined by what they did. They were being defined by who they were then and who they are now, I guess, which is the same thing that I think any of us want. We don't want to be defined by our past. We want to be defined by who we are now and the influence that we have right now. Yes, there's influence that comes from the past, but I don't want to always be known as the guy who made this mistake or the guy who made that bad choice. Those choices inform who I am now, but that's who I want to be. And I think these inmates feel the same way. I think that's an awesome perspective that most of us just don't have. So I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, it speaks to this theme that the movie has of rehabilitation, because that is essentially what these men, these prisoners, I say men, it can be women, um, that you were interacting with and that we see in Shawshank. That's the purpose. Okay. That's, that's what the purpose of a prison is supposed to be going back on paper. Yes. On <laughs> paper. Now we know that that is, and it is a whole nother discussion, but it is important, I think, to say this, that that has never been the actual purpose of a prison in this country. And if you think that that is the case, then you need to go watch Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th. Uh, it was on Netflix for a long time. I'm pretty sure it's still there. You need to do some research. But when you look at how this prison system in America came to be, it was not built to be rehabilitative, even though that is under the guise of what it has been sold to us as. That being said, some are able to become rehabilitated in a sense, then, and get out of this world. That's what the prisoners are sold as the ultimate goal. And I think even though this is set like 80 years in the past, it's very much similar to what people face today and what those men and women that you may have interacted with experienced. So I want to talk about rehabilitation for a second. At the end of the movie, Red defines rehabilitation as this. And this is one of my favorite quotes in the movie. There's a lot of this movie is one of those movies where you're just like, I love that line or I love that speech just constantly. Such a good screenplay. He said he's really fed up, right? So we see Red the very first time we see him at a parole hearing. And it's very clear to us immediately that it doesn't matter how well spoken this man is. Does it matter? how calm he is, how much he has clearly not a menace to society. These men in uh, in suits on the other side of that table are going to stamp this no because they want to, because of control or whatever the issues may be. There is no way he is ever getting out. And he slowly has come to understand this. And so he walks in at the end of this movie and he doesn't even fake it anymore. For the first time, he speaks his mind. He says, 
he's asked about, you know, they ask him that question. Do you think you have been rehabilitated? Which it feels like a Blade Runner question, Patrick. Like to me, like it reminds me of, you know, when uh, Kay is sitting in front of that machine doing his test or whatever. Anyway, his answer is this rehabilitated. Now, let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word, a politician's word. So young fellas like yourself can wear a suit and tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, or because you think that I should. I look back on the way I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try and talk some sense to him. Tell him the way things are. But I can't. That kid's long gone, and this old man is all that's left. I got to live with that. Rehabilitated? It's just a BS word. So you go on, and you stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Because to tell you the truth, I don't give a shit. <laughs> and it's a moment you want to stand up and clap, I think, for him putting it down like that but for me patrick i simultaneously want to give him a standing ovation but i have tears in my eyes because there's a realization that he gets it and yet it doesn't matter and of course in the movie he gets out right they take it to heart we get the good ending but I don't think that that's necessarily the realistic ending. And I just wondered what you thought about this theme of rehabilitation that we see in the movie and whether you agree with Red. Do you think that it's a made-up word? I think that there's a spirit of restoration that lives in that word. I think rehabilitation is the legalistic way of describing what prison life is supposed to be. But there is a restoration, which is part of that definition. It's restoring a person to normal life. It's a new normal, though, Aaron. He's an old man. He's not a young man. It's not like life paused and he lived life in prison to get rehabbed and get restored, and now he can live his life from 19 years on. No. Prison life takes your life away to an extent because you're aging through it. He's, what, 30 years in prison? Is that how long he was? Maybe 40? A long time, yeah. long time. And that was something I picked up in a recent viewing was how long this movie take, you know, what the duration of the movie was in terms of. There are of the, some big time jumps that until you've watched it several times, it can, because the characters aren't aging. Yeah. It's hard to kind of keep up with that. Like you, you can blink and it's been like 20 years. Andy's been there 20 years. Like that's, yeah. he doesn't look like he's been there more than a week. Yeah. And it, and it, it's reinforced with good dialogue and good voiceover. But yeah, I, I think. There's a lot of irony that exists in this movie, and that's a scene that is bleeding with irony, that a man who says exactly what he's supposed to to show that he's been rehabilitated doesn't get out. But when he tells it like it is, and he basically says, I don't really care what you think. Rehabilitation is BS, and it doesn't really matter anymore. Apparently, he's been rehabilitated, and I think... There are a lot of factors that go into that. It's a different group every 10 years. It's not the same group of men and women. Maybe that says a lot about the progression of where the country is or where the culture is at that point when it, when you think about um, the time period that he's actually released. Could be that it's informed by, by what's happening 
in the United States at that time. I don't know. We don't get that information. But simply speaking, I do think that maybe it's not rehabilitation, but maybe he's been restored. Ironically, it's not because of the warden or anything that the prison has done. It's with being within the walls of the prison and being institutionalized and being around those friendships for as long as they are. And that- indirectly, it kind of is, right? Because because of how awful the situation that they're put in and how terrible they're treated, it almost forces them into these relationships more so than they might be otherwise. Absolutely. He found purpose just like Andy did. He's the guy that can get you something. And he struggles with that when he leaves the prison. He has a very hard time adapting at first because who he was is no longer important, at least not in that sense. And he has to redefine. So in some ways, being institutionalized has allowed him to have part of his life taken away because he built a life in prison longer than he was alive before then. I think he went to prison when he was 19 and he's now 49. So he's lived in prison longer than he's lived out of it. So now he's got to redefine his life, which I think a lot of humans deal with that. Imagine a guy who's been working on a factory floor for 25 years and because technology has gotten the way it was, it's now done by machine. What does that guy do now at 45? Does he get retrained to be a programmer to control those machines? Probably not. But there is a responsibility on the industry to be able to find something for him to do that's going to be somewhat fulfilling. It's going to be difficult, but that's the challenge that we face now when we become more part of an automated world. What happens to those skills that are no longer necessary? And I think Red deals with that. But in terms of being restored, I think who he was and his humanity is restored, even though he has to make a big adaptation when he leaves the prison. Well, I love that you brought up the institutionalization because I think that that was key. I think that those two things kind of go hand in hand. Those are buzzwords, rehabilitation, institutionalization. And you're right. I think that there are those positives that are gained by the characters. I think that indirectly, the systems that are intentionally trying to hurt them and hold them down are giving them more encouragement to seek out forms of this restoration um, for certain ones. Now, others, clearly, like we see the man in the beginning, right? He dies. He gets beaten to death. And I think it is a very harrowing early scene because Red and all the others are hooping and hollering like they do every night, joking with him. Um, and then he starts calling out and the guards are coming and they quickly say, shh, shh, okay, okay, stop. And they, they try to stop it. They try to pull back and they're like, okay, we had our fun, but we don't want to see this person harmed and we know what's coming for him. And so they try to calm him down and they can't get there. And the looks on their face, right? It's a beautifully shot movie. And this is one of the things we linger on people's faces without words. You can see them sitting there silently and it's just, it's, it's a, it's a morose sadness because they see what's happening. And obviously they've gone through this before. Um, and they didn't want it to go like that. That, that wasn't their goal. Um, and, and yet that's the system, right? That they are part of. It, it's interesting because restoration, you would think that. Red's a restored character, rehabilitated character. He's perfect, but he's still actually deceiving. He and Andy are deceiving constantly um, throughout their time in the prison. Uh, Andy's siphoning 
illegal funds to eventually be use them uh, and break out of prison. I mean, let's be honest about what he's doing. We may agree with him on a personal or moral level, but from a legalistic point of view, he's he is now committing crimes. I love the line in the movie where someone I don't remember who it is says, I think it says I think it's read probably in his narration. He says it took coming to prison to prison to become a criminal. Yeah, it, it was is, it was Andy that said it's funny. Oh. On the outside, I was an honest man. There you and go. Here, you know, doing doing the business I'm doing, and on the inside, I had to become a crook to. And that's fascinating. It is that, the, that juxtaposition, and yet we root for him as the criminal. That's when we're rooting for him. So I wondered, did you see any? Like, where does the difference lie between what Red and Andy doing? Is there any accountability we should hold them to? Because we see. This deceit, is it necessary to get through prison life? Something we should accept? I think that that's probably what the movie is telling us more than anything else, is that deception is a part of our world. And nobody is without fault. Nobody is without some kind of deception, some kind of con. Um, there's a great, <laughs> there's a great line in White Christmas where Bing Crosby is talking to, uh, I can't remember, one of the sisters, and he goes, everybody's got an angle and she takes offense to it. And he's like, no, 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 it's okay. Everybody's got an angle. It's okay. And that's really true. The difference that I think we see between Andy specifically and red as the guy who can get things. I mean, he's doing things except you're not supposed to have contraband. You're not supposed to have, I I think it's interesting that the warden sees these posters on the wall that are snuck into Shawshank and he's not saying, take that down. Because that's contraband. He's not supposed to have it. Just like he's not supposed to have a harmonica or a, uh, or rocks in the, I mean, all these things that really are considered okay. I think that's as a result of just prison life. And you learn from a, from a disciplinary side that you're just accepting of things. It's not anything to get in a stink about, I think, as Hadley says. But to get back to that, that idea of deception, where I think, Red and Andy differ from the warden Hadley is they have to. They have to be deceptive in order to survive. I honestly, Aaron, I don't know if it's possible to be in prison, whether you're guilty or not, and not have some level of deception for survival because the situation could change in an instant and you may need to defend yourself verbally. And I don't, I can't think of a specific situation, but because you're surrounded by folks that are probably a heightened, have a heightened sense of deception, a heightened sense of an angle, potentially, you're probably going to conform to that in some way in order to survive. Maybe to get an extra piece of food or to get outdoor detail. You're going to grease the guards for a couple of packs of cigarettes so you can get your uh, get your name in a hat. But I don't think we see that as bad because it doesn't feel like it's hurting anybody. And I think the movie does that intentionally. We want to root for these guys. We want to root for Red and Andy and that gang of people. And we, we want to... And so the things that they do are not necessarily life-threatening. They don't hurt anybody. They actually benefit those. And I mean, who's getting hurt by these guys doing you know, tarring on a roof for three or four days. People are going to get their feelings hurt, but 
nobody's actually getting physically hurt because of that. And I, I think the only questionable thing is obviously Andy's because people are losing money and, and somebody's getting money that's probably not his. So, so yeah, that's, that's where I was going with this is, you know, I don't think younger me cared about that and picked up on that. But for some reason, older me is going, yeah, but Andy's taking stolen money. Like it's not money. It's money that was, it's, it's, it's like drug money, essentially like you, money that was illegally confiscated and you are, you are deciding for yourself that your cause is greater than the warden's cause. And therefore you are taking it upon yourself to use it. And not only that, but to the rooftop tarring issue where red, you know, bribes the guard in order to get his friends up on the roof, man, we're all about that. Cause that's the crew. That's our boys. Like we yeah. want them to get this. I think about this all the time, Patrick, all of the soldiers, I bring it up in every war movie. Like there's all these soldiers that are getting killed or in, in any kind of action movie who are only murdered or, or die because they are following the orders of the person that's in charge of them. They're not evil. They're not, they have no beef on a personal level. They are doing a job and they are killed. And yet we feel no remorse. We feel no remorse for all the other prisoners that based on a system of, that should be a fair thing of chance have no chance. They have it taken away from them because someone else bribed. Maybe one of them needed to get away as well. Maybe one of them is suffering and could have, you know, had his life saved or changed forever if he had won that and gotten a week on that roof, but somebody else took that away via a bribe. And I do think it's important that we consider that when watching the movie. I don't think we have to feel bad about rooting for Andy and Red and their friends or Andy to get out of Shawshank because we know he's innocent, even if it's by illegal means. But I think it's important to think about. Yeah, like in, a, in an ideal state, in a purely honest setting, Andy would wait. He wouldn't try to escape. He would wait until somebody found out that he wasn't or he Some would true crime podcast exactly investigated his life and decided serial <laughs> exactly. 6.0 the case of andy dufresne or he would he would learn to be okay with living in prison his whole life but clearly that was not the case and he spent 19 years basically doing his con so that he could escape shawshank so at some point he, he knew what he was doing was illegal and wrong, but of course, as an audience, because he's the protagonist, because we're following his story, we want him to succeed. When we see him escape, we're cheering. I mean, we're, we're like raising our hands with him as he's letting the rain fall on his half naked body in that pile of crap that he's in, in the moat or whatever. But the fact is, it's supposed to be a biased narrative. I mean, this is not objective. And I think that it wouldn't be as entertaining if we got the biographical side of this and we got to see what's prison life like in Shawshank. No, I don't want to see that. I want to see Andy's story. Well, speaking of Andy's story, uh, you know, a couple quick things and then we'll we'll get on to our connecting points here. But one thing I do want to point out, I called this film flawless in my opening and I do feel that it is flawless to me. But there is one thing that I think is funny. 
<laughs> and that is, you brought it up. We get to see one spot check of Andy's cell in the entire history of him being there. Now, that doesn't mean that more didn't happen. Clearly, logic tells you that his room was inspected more than once. In 20 years, no one looked behind this poster, Patrick. And there is a bit of escapism, of suspension of disbelief that I think has to occur. A bit of fantasy to get to the point where you believe that this could truly take place in an otherwise very grounded and realistic feeling story, in my opinion. it For a twinge of a second, I'm like, come on, man. And then I'm over it. But why do you think that he was able to keep this all a secret? Do you think there's any narrative reason for that? Or do you think we just have to accept it because it's good movie, make good storytelling or whatever? Well, it is good storytelling. But if I had a fan theory, I would say this. There's a little ego. There's not a lot of, there's a lot of ego that exists between Hadley and Norton. And when you have that one inspection where Norton is facing down with Andy, again, you're right. We've got to believe that there were more than that. I honestly believe Hadley and Norton's ego got in the way of seeing Andy as anything but someone who's going to help them. I thought, I really believe that they think and they thought that he was that they were better than him and they had the best of him. They they couldn't believe that because of what he was doing for them, the way in which he was acting as this white white collar business guy, I think he had them snowed, honestly, Aaron. He didn't show any signs of aggression. He didn't show any signs of deception. And so I think they gave him a pass, honestly. And over the course of 20 years, building those relationships and doing those things to that were really altruistic. There was only there were only two instances where he essentially lost his crap. And one was not really that. It was just defying the guards with the with the music and playing the music over the loudspeaker. The other one being just almost my connecting point. Almost my connecting point. That okay. was an incredible, incredible scene. I love that. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. Again, sacrifice. Go back yeah. to sacrifice. Andy sacrificed himself for the betterment of every single person in that prison because he knew that that meant more. Yes. And he was willing to take the punishment. And that is love. That is what makes people want to pay it back to you and sacrifice themselves. Absolutely. Uh, so anyway, sorry. But I, I think he depicted himself in a way that was very nonchalant that was very unassuming and because of that there was a false sense of trust that that uh the warden and hadley had with him because they benefited from him being there so they're not gonna assume or think that he's actually trying to escape and therefore why even you know why even question it so I'd like to believe that that's probably why. At the same time, like you, there's a small bit of me that's like, really, 19 years, and you didn't, you didn't want to pull down that poster and say this doesn't need to be here. I mean, it's a big risk, Aaron. It's a huge risk, and the rock camera inside the Bible is a huge risk. Love the fact that 
it's cut out at and, the, and the, Hadley had it in his hands at one point. That's yes. Yeah. Well, and also that if you notice when he when uh, when Norton opens the Bible at the end, it's cut. The there are pages. Yeah. That that are cut out. There are pages in front of it, but it's cut out at Exodus. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I did not was, see that, but that is brilliant. It's touch. a great, it's a great, great touch. But yeah, I, I think that more for the narrative than anything else, it plays out that way. But my personal theory is that he had them snowed to an extent that they weren't going to necessarily question him his motives yeah i think that that makes the most sense and that's pretty much the way you have to view it with so that it doesn't break the realism of the movie for you as a viewer right well this ends on a hopeful note and i think that's the beauty of this film above and beyond all is that we see tragedies and we see ups and downs but it ends on hope and that's with Andy and Red both free and together and ready to get busy living instead of getting busy dying. Are there other moments of hope? I think maybe the music is one we could point to of Andy. I love the fact that everyone stops what they're doing in that prison yard and doesn't move a muscle and doesn't say a word and just listens. I think Andy becoming a tutor giving these men the potential to learn via the library, to experience culture via the music that he brings in and on his incredible determination in order to get those funds. Uh, and, and, and like I said, the tutoring, him being able to help them become more educated. I think those help provide them reasons to hope, reasons to go on. Is there anything else for you that does that? in the movie and yeah, those are the two big ones. Um, I, I struggle with the ending because there's a clear break, uh, with the cinematography and what Deacons does where we get the big shot of Andy driving down the coast and the, the camera pans out to the ocean. I would have expected the credits to roll at that point, but we get this epilogue with, with red, we get his ending. And I think for Andy, he was hold his hope was that, he would eventually get to see red again at Zewataneo. And I think that's a beautiful shot to end the movie where you have both of them looking at each other. Red puts his stuff down. He's in like that suit from (laughs) when he was 19 and the camera pans away. We don't get to see their expressions, but we infer that they're smiling. I think we see them hug at some point, but maybe we don't, but there's a lot there that, reminds us and that shows us you know what hope is a good thing as andy says and that if you follow and if you continue to pursue you can find that that it is a thing that can help sustain you and each time i watch it there are times when i wish it would stop with the ocean but then there are times when i'm glad that it stops with their friendship and they're meeting up at zawataneo while he's working on that that raggedy boat because that's really what I think both of them were hoping in was that deep connection that they had with each other, because that's what they valued the most. There's a great line that in my worst Morgan Freeman impersonation, I always quote, and he basically says, I guess I just miss my friend when he's going through that little epilogue um, that, that gets us to the end of the movie. To me, I think that was a, a moment of vulnerability for him. He's like, you know what? He was my friend. And not having him around, I, I do feel that sense of loss. So having them 
get to reunite, I think is a great ending. And to me, that's a fulfillment of hope. Yeah, it definitely is a fulfillment of that for them. And I think it personally, I wouldn't want this movie to end any other way because I think that their relationship is the key. Andy has lost his wife and, you know, in a sense, Red is replacing that relationship for him. Um, and he is now offered the opportunity to do something for someone and to go out of his way to provide that attention and that situation, make that possible to help someone. And he does. And it is beautiful, man. I just love the whole thing. I love watching red sit there and read the letter and look over his shoulder. Like you see, he has, he still has that prison fear. Like he's like, is somebody watching me? Am I being set up? Like, are the cops going to come running down? Like he's first, he's shocked that it's even there, but then, as he starts to read and realize and, and it's trust and it's faith, faith, right? Faith and hope that, that Andy is setting this up intentionally and that there is a place for him outside now that he doesn't have to be alone and he doesn't have to be scared and not have anywhere to go. And so it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful, hopeful ending. Um, and one that I think leaves us on that uplifted high. And that's a wonderful way to end this movie. Well, I want to go into our connecting points. Um, and I am going to go first because mine is a bit of a Debbie Downer as compared to yours, frankly. And like the movie, I want to end on a note more of hopefulness than of sadness. But look, my connecting point ultimately ended up being Brooks's death. And, you know, if you've been listening to this all this time, you probably are wondering why we hadn't talked about that yet. That's because we were saving it. That whole sequence of this movie guts me, Patrick. It guts me and it brings me to tears every time. And I have to really kind of struggle for a minute to get myself back from it because this is the reality of life for so many people in prison. He Starts this whole scene off by threatening Haywood, his friend, mind you, with a shiv. And everybody's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're like crowned around him. He says, it's the only way they'd let me stay. And the moment he says that, I, I just feel this heaviness come over me like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, what is this man feeling right now? He's been in prison for 50 years and he finally got parole. And you would think that this is a time for celebration, right? Like, oh, my God. 50 years, the man's going to get out. But we talked about that institutionalization that happens. You become accustomed to the system. And Red tries to explain this to the rest of the guys. He says he's just institutionalized in here. He's an important man, an educated man, as compared to other prisoners. Outside, he's just a used up old con. Believe what you want. These walls are funny. First, you hate them. Then you get used to them. After long enough, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Best definition you'll ever see. No textbook can make it better than that because it doesn't have the feeling involved in it. And it, this is so true. And what happens? We see Brooks get out. We see him go find a place to live. He gets a job bagging groceries. There's great juxtaposition at the end of the film with Red going to the same place and Red doing the same job and you get to experience a little bit of fear that red's going to have the same fate 
And I think we know what's coming this whole time. I think we know that Brooks is not going to make it. And that's not a shock from the movie. It's more about we're waiting for that emotional explanation from Brooks's point of view. And we get it via this letter that is read while we see Brooks taking his life. And it is it is painful. But he says this. Dear fellas, I can't believe how fast things move on the outside. I saw an automobile once when I was a kid, but now they're everywhere. The world went and got itself big in a big damn hurry. The parole board got me into this halfway house called The Brewer and job bagging groceries at the foodway. It's hard work and I try to keep up, but my hands hurt most of the time. I don't think the store manager likes me very much. Sometimes after work, I go to the park and feed the birds. I keep thinking Jake... Might just show up and say hello, but he never does. I hope wherever he is, he's doing okay and making new friends. I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Sometimes it takes me a while to remember where I am. Maybe I should get me a gun and rob the foodway so they'll send me home. I could shoot the manager while I was at it, sort of like a bonus. I guess I'm too old for that sort of nonsense anymore. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss. Not for an old crook like me. P.S. Tell Haywood I'm sorry I put a knife to his throat. No hard feelings. Brooks. And the last thing he does before he hangs himself is he carves into the wood. Brooks was here. And this is the thing. There are prisoners that deal with this every day. Why do you think so many people end up right back in jail? Because that's where the consistency is. That's where the safety net is. That's where they're used to. It's We don't make it easier for people on the outside. We don't rehabilitate. We don't make it so that those who have committed a crime have paid a debt and are in a situation to come back and be productive members of society. In so many cases, we don't. We have tons and tons and tons of veterans of the armed forces with PTSD who come back and will quote these same, I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Maybe I should get me a gun. And they take their lives. This is depression. And Fear and nowhere to turn, no one to help him. And it is so, so tragic. And it is so, so sad to see this play out like this, um, in the film. And if that's why it's my takeaway here, or what is it? My connecting points. <laughs> Sorry. It, it's that people are feeling like this and they need to be heard and they need to be supported. And we can't do that. If we just throw people out and expect them to do things on their own without preparing them, um, whether it's prisoners or whether it's like veterans, like I said, coming back from wars, um, it's how you treat people and how the world views people with depression. And and I, anyway, it just all of that stuff comes whooshing into my head and it's very emotional. And um, so that's that's my connecting point And I I hate it. It's the worst part of this movie for me. It's the saddest part of this movie for me. And, um, but I'm glad it's there. Well, 
That's sad. And, but true. And it says a lot about the need for friendship, which is obviously uh, a huge important thing in this movie, but it definitely might drive a man to drink. <laughs> and speaking of drinking, um, my connecting point was more uplifting and it involved Bohemia style beer, which when I put this in the notes, uh, Aaron cleverly put in a, a note that says the one scene in the movie with alcohol. What does that say about you? Okay, well, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, the connecting point for me was the rooftop scene. I remember watching this um, for the podcast and messaging you saying, I am in love with this scene. And it's beyond just the fact that it makes me feel really good. I love the way it plays out. The blocking, the script, all the technical stuff just comes together in a way that makes it great. But it does a lot of different things for the narrative. It captures a sense of freedom. And I put that in air quotes. Uh, and hope also in just a few minutes. There's, there are several lines that reinforce that. When Andy is almost being thrown off the roof, he convinces Hadley. The whole thing starts with Hadley complaining that he's going to get all this money from the death of a, a brother-in-law or something, but he won't be able to keep it because of the taxes and because his kids want to take a ride in this car that he's going to have to buy that he has to pay taxes on. And like, why are you buying a car? Um, but Andy just puts his mop down and starts walking toward Hadley. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And I love the fact that there's commentary in the back saying he's going to throw him off the roof. Cause he probably is. I know. Right? <laughs> it's like, what's going to, and he says, there's no reason you can't keep that $8,000. He goes, what are you talking about? And so he tells him how he can keep the money by doing a one-time gift to his wife. And then he says, I love what he says here. He goes, all I would ask is three beers a piece for each of my fellow coworkers. <laughs> and the guy in the back's like, get that coworkers. But it starts this idea that Red narrates in voiceover where we're getting a sense of what it means to be normal. What it meant, what it means to not be a prisoner. Red says, um, in that voiceover, when they get the beer and they're sitting there drinking it, he says, we could have been tarring the roofs of our own houses. It feels normal. It feels like we're actually human beings in this moment. And that's what he says. He, he says, maybe he did it to curry favor with the guards. Maybe he did it to gain a few friends. I think he just wanted to feel normal again. And there's this moment that I kind of breezed by, but I caught a little bit more meaning behind it. Maybe it was intentional or not. But one of the guys, uh, I think it's Haywood, gives him, offers him a beer and he goes, no thanks, I gave up drinking with that really great grin on his face. And first of all, of course he gave up drinking. He's in prison, he can't drink. But then I think about what happened the night that his wife was murdered? What was he doing? He was drinking. And so in a way, I think there was this passing of the torch. And he says, I finally got a clear head. I'm finally starting to understand what it means to get busy living, even though we haven't heard that line yet. And I think the rooftop scene really helped start a lot of stuff for him. It did curry favor with the guards. It did help him make some friends or confirm these friends that he had with this, uh, with this gang of, of miscreants. But it also did make him feel normal for a moment. And that led to what we see as this long con 
<laughs> that eventually leads to his escape. I think that moment, that rooftop scene was needed for him. I think he needed that. I think had he not, there wouldn't have been an opportunity for him to be able to uh, be who he was and to allow us to see him grow from that moment. So it's it's definitely my connecting point. Oh, it's a good one. It is. It's a good one. And I love that it's the moment you texted me about first while you were watching the movie, too, and you pointed it out and then it held through all the way through your viewing as your connect point. That's always a kind of a fun little behind the scenes baseball here for you, mm-hmm. how this works. We're always texting each other when we're watching movies, too, um, just like normal friends that we are. <laughs> we're not just here for the podcast. Um, but, yeah, I think that the fact I mean, he takes a risk, Patrick. He takes a risk. He might have gotten thrown off the roof. But at that point, Andy cannot sit silent anymore and not be who he is. He is suppressing who he is. He needs to let that out, no matter what the cost may be. And again, it goes back to that conversation we had. He's smart enough and he is quick enough on his feet to take advantage of those moments and make those situations turn for the best, even when they're scary close to going wrong. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's a great moment. And I, the grin is the best. The grin is one of the best shots in the entire movie. That grin is phenomenal. It is, yeah. I find myself if on spring days, if I'm sitting down, I kind of replicate that. Like if I'm sitting back, I'm just kind of like... I feel you like would. With my Bohemia-style beer that I would be drinking. <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> or a bottle all. of suds, as he calls it. <laughs> Speaking of beer, after this recording, we are going to be doing some drinking. Apparently our trivia master has gotten a little bit deep because we've run a little long and we probably need to get to him before he's completely wasted and asks us questions that don't really have anything to do with movies. Absolutely. So that's going to do it for this episode of Feelin' Film. We hope that you've had a good time with this conversation as much as we have. With all the content that we've packed into this special week, it's hard to believe that in two days we will actually be returning for more. So you'll want to stay tuned as we bring you our coverage of Knives Out with special guest Colby Mack. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Feelin' Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.